Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hello, wine friends, and welcome back to another episode. Now, my guest today really does not need an introduction. I am sure every single one of you knows who Master of Wine Tim Atkin is. Whether you have read one of his articles, whether you follow him on Instagram and see some of his beautiful photography and all of his adventures around the world, he is one of the three wine men. So you may have met him at one of his events with Jolly Ollie and Oz Clark. If you are in the wine industry and maybe you judge at the International Wine Challenge, you will know that he is a co-chairman. Tim is hilarious. He is knowledgeable. He's really great fun. It's only taken Tim and I, I don't know, about two years perhaps to organize an actual date for this podcast. So honestly, I'm so excited we have finally done it. Tim spends much of his time traveling to places like Chile, South Africa, Ribera del Duero in Spain and Rioja so that he can write these incredibly detailed and knowledgeable and informative reports on what's going on and what wineries and winemakers or wines are doing really, really well. And so in February, February the 13th, he is bringing a whole load of winemakers from Rioja with all of his favorite wines. And there is a tasting for the trade during the day and for consumers in the evening. So anybody who is around London on February the 13th. So if that interests you, go to timatkin.com and you'll be able to buy tickets, but do it quickly before they sell out. And so for this reason, today's episode is all about Rioja. So not just about the grapes, the villages, but his own opinions, thoughts and inside scoop. Now, before we get to the episode, may I give a big shout out to my sponsor of this season, Wickham's Wine, an incredible online retailer. What if you just hit me up recently to say you tried some of their wines and loved it? I told you guys, it's not just me. Amazing quality. And remember, first order, if you use the code EATSLEEP10, you'll get 10% off. But I know you're all raring to go and ready to hear what Tim has to say. So let's go talk to Tim now all about Rioja. Okay. It's finally happened. Has it taken us to finally do when when did you finally say that you were going to be on this podcast? I don't know if it was two, three years ago. Oh well, I don't know. I've been, I've been playing hard to get. <laughs> no, it's just it's made know, me it's made you want it's it even made more. Me want you more. Oh, darling. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, dearie me. Anyway, we finally got you here. You're in the hot seat and I get to ask you a million questions now. Ask so, away. Okay. Far away. Are you ready? No, see, okay. I want most people, I would hope, who are passionate about wine, who've listened to this podcast, who've been drinking for a while, should know who you are, right? So they're going to all be wanting to know, actually more than most people, did you ever have a wine moment? Was there a wine experience? What happened? How? How did you get into the wine industry? It was actually a bit complete by chance, really. When I was at university, I'd run a magazine with two friends and one of the friends did a three-year degree okay. and I did a four-year degree because I studied, studied French with Spanish. Mm-hmm. And so 
in the year between me coming back to do my fourth year and him going into the wider world of work, he got a job on a, with a magazine company. And he said to me, when I finished my degree, he said, there's a job on a wine magazine. Why don't you apply? And I had already written to this magazine company, big company, and said, you know, this is stuff I've written at university. And they said, when you finish your degree, get in contact. And there was a job on a wine magazine. And it could have been anything because this magazine company had magazines about dentistry. It had magazines about cars and vans and all sorts of things. And so I got a job on a wine magazine and I was not a wine expert at all. And I think they uh-huh. took me on basically because I'd done some okay journalism at university, but more because I spoke languages. So that was it. I mean, it was lucky. Complete fuke. Do you remember your first ever wine article published in that magazine? Yeah, absolutely do. It was not a wine article. So when you were, I was what was then called an editorial assistant. This is so long ago that we had typewriters. This is before even <laughs> even the Amstrad. In my first year, I bought an Amstrad. Typewriters, and then we used to cut out pieces of paper and stick them onto a, a galley sheet and then turn the, the lines over at the bottom. And I mean, that's how long ago it was. My first ever article in Wine and Spirit, as it was then, was about cream liqueurs. Obviously, when this episode comes out, it's going to be January. Uh, We are recording during Christmas, you and I. (laughs) Will you be having any cream liqueurs or any cream sherries? I quite like cream sherry. Uh, Cream liqueur, it used to be one of my little secret vices. When I was at university, a friend of mine had a theory that we all had a secret food vice. And hers was the wagon wheel. Do you remember the wagon wheel, which was a chocolate (gasps) for the wheel? Oh, my God. God, yeah, with the marshmallow, marshmallow and jam inside, inside wasn't and, it? And mine was, <gasps> mine was sort of Bailey's Irish cream liqueur for a bit. But having said that, I haven't had one for 20 uh-huh. years. But that was my first ever published article in Wine Spirit was about the cream liqueur market. Hey, God. Amazing. Wow. Okay, listen, after this podcast, you need to go and get a Bailey's, right? I Sit think I down do. And just- I do. Take it back a few decades. Oh, my God. I absolutely love that. Well, anyway, so you fell into the wine world, which actually many of us did. Obviously started taking it very seriously. You have now got your master wine. When did you, was it just after 2000? I can't remember. I passed that in 2001. Yes. Okay. Because I, I did do, I did do some. No, I'm, I'm very impressed with the amount of work you've done. Well, yeah, but then Christmas came along and then I completely forgot everything. But, okay. So I wanted, what I love about finding out when people have passed their master wine you can go on to the uh, website, the Institute of Master Wines, and you can see if it was in the last, almost like just the last decade, what the research paper they did was, which I think is fascinating. And you can download it and you can read it. And it's brilliant seeing these amazing minds and what they've done because they focused on something so specific. But because you were 2001, they didn't back then put up the research papers or they haven't done it now I don't know but I can't find your research paper so I was this is why I have to ask you what did you choose to focus on interesting I I wrote mine about Tokai it was about tradition and innovation in the Tokai region so I when I wrote it Tokai was you know not that long after the fall of the Berlin Wall and and and, and Hungary you know becoming a non-communist country as it were and it was just a fascinating place and I went there on a press trip and I thought this is amazing and so journalistically it appealed to me to write about this place that had been a very historic wine region and then kind of gone into the doldrums um, under the communist rule from, you know, I don't know, 48 to, to 1990 or so, and was then reborn. And so I wrote about it. And I think then a lot of the dissertations these days are unbelievably boring, I think, because they've made, <laughs> they've made them very statistical or statistics-based. And I don't know why that's happened, because I think in a way a Master of Wine dissertation should be, a lot of it should be about 
good writing and and research and history. And I suppose I approached it as a journalist and a historian. And this was pre them making it increasing unbelievably statistics based. And I think they've kind of missed a trick, really. I mean, some of the some of the ones modern ones are interesting, but others I think people just get way too hung up on all this data. And I don't know who reads all the data. I, I, some scientist somewhere has told the institute that they need to include <laughs> lots of data, and it's just boring. I think that it'd be much more interesting if, as mine was, I think I can send it if you want. Was a reasonably yes! you no, know, it was a good read. You know, I mean, and, and, and funnily enough, when they originally referred it, four of us passed first time uh, and when we did it we used to do the dissertation before it's now the research paper used to do it before the exam and we were the first year that wrote it after the exam and of the three of us who passed first time three of us passed first time we were all referred and they said that mine was too journalistic and and I kind of had a bit of a fight with them and said why is it too journalistic because it's too well written in a sense sorry being arrogant but uh, <laughs> anyway in the end they passed it and that'd be, there we go but anyway it was fun oh I love that but I'll send oh, it you- to you it's out. You have to. And it's perfect time because actually, funny enough, literally a few episodes before, I spoke with the winery director of Royal Tokai. So one of ah. my latest episodes is on Tokai. I just think it's such a phenomenal product and especially, especially the sweets. But it's so exciting that now they're going into such amazing, they've got the dry, stilled ferments. It's just, you know, anyway, so the last last few episodes, so it's really interesting that you've done that. Yes, send it to me and then I'll judge you and I'll let you yeah, know if you, you deserve can. to have passed. You can. Yes, love it. So what, when you were doing your Master of Wine, what was the hardest thing back then? Was it the something like the research paper was it certain exams was it the blind tasting for you what, what did you struggle with the most the research paper I really enjoyed doing the tasting I enjoyed doing a lot because I think I'm a good taster and and I was lucky as a journalist I had access to lots of bottles not just tastings but free samples and things like that the bit that I really struggled with was what was then paper two which was kind of the science of of wine it was much more about things like bottling I was absolutely crap at science at school. I got a C in what was then physics with chemistry O-level. I was in that kind of art stream. So I did history and languages and English and stuff like that. And I found it really hard doing the scientific bit, like like the difference between all the gases. And so I learned all this stuff and I forgot it the minute I walked out of the exam room. But, you know, the, you know <laughs> why, why do people use nitrogen as opposed to carbon dioxide as opposed to this and that? And, and so that was the bit that was hard for me. I thought the marketing paper was and business of wine was what I was doing anyway. The viticulture was not too bad because it was less scientific in a way. It was the winemaking bit, particularly the post-production bottling. I mean, I, you know, I even went to felling You've been to Felling uh, to a bottling. No, I went to a bottling plant in Felling. I spent a day at Felling, just talking to the production manager, saying, "Why do you do this? Why do you do that?" Anyway, that was the bit I found hard. So basically, yeah, you wouldn't recommend anyone going to a bottling plant for the day. That's not one of your wine experiences that sticks in your head. Not so magical. If they're doing the Master of Wine, I would because it's it's actually um, very boring but essential. You know, you need to know that stuff about shipping wine and stuff like that. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's part of being a master of wine. I mean, as I said, I've never used it again, but but I'm glad I learned it. Well, now you talk about the boring part of wine. Is that why you are so well known for wearing such spectacular, colourful shirts? Because you refuse that people will find wine boring. Is this part of it? I think it probably is. I've, I've always liked shirts. I've always liked colours. I've always liked dressing up. A bit of me likes not conforming, I suppose. So so that's my, <laughs> it's my way of expressing a bit of colour, a bit of fun. And, you know, I, I like wearing stripy trousers and, and loud shirts and loud suits. And I think it's, you know, fun. Why, why not? Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think it's a bit of that. How many shirts 
With colour. We don't care about the white ones. How many shirts do you own? That's a very good question. And it's very germane to what I'm going to do today when we finish this podcast, which is I'm going to have a bit of a shirt clear out and I'm going to take some because I reckon I've probably got 100. I've got a very good friend, John Hegarty, the advertising guy, and he has a rule, which is one in, one out. So if he buys a new shirt, he throws an old one away. If he buys a new book, he recycles a book. And I think that's very good yeah. advice. So I think I think I may lose 20 or so today to Oxfam. Well, the good thing is you're giving them to charity, but I don't know, you know, you could do like a, a shirt sale online on Instagram for the wine community and then the proceeds, which I bet you could get more money. It's not a lot of work. It's a lot of effort though. Yeah. Could maybe. then go to a charity. Well, <laughs> Let's discuss. What, what, <laughs> well, let let me choose know. the shirts I mean, we, first. Get rid of the shirts first. Well, I don't know, a, a Tim, a Tim special. And then people can go and then people could wear your old wine colourful t-shirts, or shirt, shall I say, to wine tastings. It would be it, you could start this whole crazy trend. They could turn up as clones of me. Yeah, I quite like that. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you like that, okay, yeah. Maybe yeah. maybe I'm going a little bit too far. Well, you're not the only one, are you, to wear the colourful shirts? Yeah. Of course, you've got, Ollie, you've got Oz, the three wine men. Many, many people may have discovered you personally from, from the three wine men. And I've never asked you, how did that happen? Was that a coincidence? Did you just sit down over, you know, a very tasty glass of wine and go, hey, we should put on some nice shirts and... Talk about wine in a fun way. <laughs> There's actually a shirt sponsor for Three Wine Men, which is called, who called Gresham Blake, which is not the only oh. place I buy my shirts. But Ollie knew Gresham Blake, who was a bloke wow. called Gresham, okay. because they have a shop in Brighton and Ollie lives in Lewis, and, and they sponsored us. So when we wear shirts to Three Wine Men, they are Gresham Blake shirts. But my okay. own personal shirts I buy from various people, including Gresham Blake, but I mostly buy my shirts from a place called Emmet, which is a place in the King... They have a branch in the King's Road and one in... German Street. And so that that's that's it really. I mean they, you know, Ollie likes loud shirts. Oz will wear anything that's free, basically. <laughs> Why does that not sit? No, I mean Oz anyway. I mean I just love he he is the quirkiest by far, I he think. Is. He You've is. got to he hand is. it to him. He is. You've got to interview but, him. Oh, do you know what? Can't At some point either. if I can pin him, it well, no, no, no. Do you know what? You were hard enough getting you down. So it's like, you know, you've got to choose one person to like stalk for years. <laughs> now I'll tell you what, next one we'll work on Oz. We'll work on Oz because he's always busy. He's always gallivanting around somewhere or other. <laughs> How did the three of you, though, decide to come together? You've obviously got the sponsor, you explained yeah. that. But just to to start doing wine events. and Ollie and I were in something called The Wine Gang and Ollie and I decided that we didn't want to do that anymore for various reasons. And so we said, well, why don't we do something together? And Oz is a very old friend of mine. And I said to Oz, Oz, do you fancy joining us? We slightly have some doubts about the name now, about Three Wine Men. And so we're thinking about, <laughs> we want to rebrand it. We are rebranding it. Oh. And watch the space. Partly because it's uh. a bit, maybe it's a bit too male focused. I mean, we're blokes, obviously, but. and You did let Susie in. Susie Atkins is part of it. And we're, we're looking to expand the franchise a bit more and get other people in, particularly some more younger women. I think it's a good idea. I mean, you know, we just call it Three Wine Men because of three wise men, ho, ho, ho. And it was fun. And, and and we have fun doing it. And I think that's the and main thing. And it's still is that fun. We're all, yeah, we're all reasonably extroverted people. We like meeting consumers and we like talking to people. And they're, they're fun events, really. And it was a bit sad during lockdown that we... Let's stop doing them, obviously. Um, but we we kept it going by doing lots of online tastings and that worked, really. 
Oh, I love it. Well, we're talking about events. We you are. personally have an event coming up. I do. Which I'm sure, hopefully, there'll be a few tickets left for anybody who's listening. Tell me about the event, when it is, where it is, and why people have to be at this event. I will tell you. It's on February the 13th, and it's called The Best of Rioja. Now, I have to stress that this is The Best of Rioja according to me, right? But it's a region <laughs> that I know a reasonable bit about. It was very frustrating for me that, that Rioja is a very corporate place in terms of the people who run it. And they always tend to promote the biggest rather than the best. And there'd never been a tasting ever, either in Spain or in England or anywhere else, where the best producers were all together in one room pouring their wine. So I thought, well, I'm going to get the best 50 producers all to come. And they're nearly all coming. They're nearly all pouring their wines. And it's on February the 13th at One Great George Street, which is very close to Westminster Tube and the Houses of Commons. It's a lovely, lovely, lovely venue. And it's going to be a trade tasting during the day. And then in the evening, from 5.30 to 8.30, it is a consumer tasting, so called the Best of Rioja. They're all going to be there. I mean, some places you'll never have heard of. Some bodegas are incredibly famous, you know, the Marcus de Murietas of this world, the Cunes of this world, Rioja Alta, people like that. They'll all be there, all pouring their own wines, but there are also lots of small people that you may not be familiar with. Even if you think you know about Rioja, this is the Rioja. This is really a unique opportunity for a mere 50 quid, a ticket to spend three hours tasting some unbelievable bottles of wine. And if you're very nice to me, I'll say hello. (laughs) So it's a bit a lot of fun, yeah. And there's lots of the winemakers personally are going to be All the winemakers are coming. There are are people coming, there are consumers coming from Madrid to attend this tasting. This, This is, you know, the word unique is overused, but it is a unique tasting. This has never happened before anywhere in the world. There are 250 tickets. And I think the last time I looked, I think we've got about 30 left. So so if you want to come, snap them up. A few more. Yeah. Love it. So, you know, in terms of like when you put all these wineries out in the room, would you be putting them out in the three provinces in the La Rioja Alta area, in the Rioja Oriental area, yeah. or, you know, yeah? Is that how uh, you do We haven't you? done that. We're gonna, I think we're going to do it in alphabetical order. Uh, there are some people... Oh, okay. <laughs> there, no, but there are some people who are sharing tables. So we're like, we're their friends and they're small people. Rather than taking oh, right, a whole like table, that. they've got three wines each and so they're coming. But the idea is that people will talk to them. The other thing about Rioja Alta, Alavesa and Oriental is that... There are some wines, obviously, historically in Rioja, which are blends of different subregions or different villages. So that makes it a bit trickier in a way. But I think it wouldn't be a bad idea. Maybe we'll do that in the brochure, actually, to say to people, this is where this person's based and their wines are mainly or exclusively from one of these subregions. I think that's a good point. The problem with the subregions is that particularly Rioja Alta is very diverse and so is Rioja Oriental. Alavesa is a bit smaller and is mostly on one or a couple of soil types. So it's a little bit easier to generalise about Alavesa. Rioja Alta and Rioja Oriental or Rioja Baja, as it was known in the past, are a little bit harder to generalise about. But they're very different. Would you care to explain for somebody who kind of goes, yeah, you know, I love Rioja. And that is, Rioja is a brand name as well for many people and they feel very comfortable and, but they're not so aware of the fact that there is so, so much difference in terms of, of climate, as you've already just mentioned, soils and just the Rioja Oriental and the Rioja Alta, so different and even the focus of the, the grape varieties. So from being there and going across between those two, how would you best describe the differences to somebody listening? I think rather than thinking in terms of Alta, 
Alavesa and, and Oriental is to break it down much, much, much more than that. And if you go from the northwest corner down to the, the southern extremity, the southern extremity would be the, the hottest bit. It's closest to the Mediterranean. That's in the Rock Oriental and it's pretty flat yeah, and, and hot. The northwest corner is the coolest bit of Rioja. And that's very much influenced by the Bay of Biscay and Bilbao and some pretty awful weather. And Rioja is basically you know, is a river valley uh, and the Ebro River runs through the middle of it pretty much. It bends and weaves a little bit, uh, and it basically flows from the west down to the east, and the east is obviously the Mediterranean end. And as I said, the further east you go, the warmer it gets. But altitude is one of the complicating factors. So even in Rioja Oriental, eastern Rioja, which is hotter, there are bits within it that are cooler. And some of the highest vineyards in Rioja, in fact, the, the highest vineyards in Rioja are in the Rioja Oriental or Rioja Baja. Oh, that Lo- just... Oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> so it's, it's, quite, it's quite complicated. So a lot of it is based on soil type. It's based on which way the vineyards face. Do they face east, south, west, north? It, the age of vines is, all, is, is a big deal. How much influence there is from the Atlantic, how much there is from the Mediterranean. So rather than thinking in terms of the three sub-regions, think about maybe 10 regions. And if you buy my report, plug, plug, I talk about the, the sub-regions within it and then even break it down. So you're thinking about individual villages, where are the villages, the way we do about Burgundy, that even though, you know, Gervais-Chambertin and Chambord-Musigny and, and von Romanet are all in, in the Côte de Nuit, they're very different villages and they produce very different styles of wine. And I, that's kind of where I want Rioja to get to. And it's also what I'm trying to do with this tasting as a first step to say, this place is so complex. It's not yeah. just three subregions. It's not just wines that taste of American oak and that are maybe Tempranillo. It's much, much, much more diverse than that. But I think actually they, they're trying to do that, aren't they? So for the last few years, there's been that push for the vinos, the municipios, yeah. am I pronouncing it Municipio, right? Municipios, yeah. municipios, isn't yeah. it? So they are trying to, to push the village names. There's the single vineyards. Do you feel that that they're doing this well? Is there still work to make it less complicated? Because there's always that... Unfortunately, as so often seems to happen in this region, they're they're doing it very badly. (laughs) And the problem with Rioja as a region is that it's dominated by the interests of big bodegas. And the big bodegas resist change, really, uh, in many cases. And these two changes were sort of dragged out of them. Part of the reason that they did it was because Juan Carlos López de la Calle of a, of a bodega called Antari left Rioja. He basically said, I don't want any more to do with this thing because you, I can't put the name of my vineyard on the label. And so he forced change upon them. And the I'll come back to the single vineyard wines, the Vineyard Singulares in a second. But the, the municipio was they said, OK, you can use the name of the village. But again, they did it very badly in that if you have, if you have vineyards in more than one village, as many people in Burgundy would do, and also many people in Rioja do, you can't use more than one municipio. You can only use the name of the village where your winery is based. So you have to have a bodega. It's illogical in a sense. It, you know, it's, the idea is right, but it's badly applied. The Singularis, they've made it so strict that, that a lot of people, you know, they qualify one year, then the next year they don't qualify. And instead of classifying the vineyard, they classify the vineyard and then they classify the wine every year. So you have to keep representing the wine every year. A lot of these wines keep failing the tasting commission. That's one problem. The other problem is that most of the best single vineyard wines, many of which have been single vineyard wines for over 100 years, and where the name of the vineyard is the brand, I don't know, something like Contino would be a good example, have not joined the group 
And that's a lot of the problem, I think, is that a lot of the best vineyard, single vineyard wine, Tondonia is another one from, from Lope de Redia is the name of a vineyard, have basically not, not joined this group. So I think good idea, but so far it hasn't quite worked. But, you know, they're going in the right direction, but they need a lot of encouragement. They really do, because and they almost have to be forced into doing things. And I see it as part of my role to keep disagreeing with them and keep pushing them along and they don't like it. (laughs) Well, to be fair, I have read many of your reports, whether it be from Chile, Rivera del Duero. Thank you. I haven't read your Rias Baichas report yet. That's that's on the list, but (laughs) loads of reports to read. And I do love, for anyone who hasn't read any of Tim's reports, he does seem to want to stick a spanner in the mix everywhere. Like, don't you? It's like, yeah, you haven't got that right yet. You probably should change that. So yeah, you've made enough friends to now try and push them that little bit further, right? You're just giving them nudges. No, I think I think it's part of being a journalist. You know, somebody once said the worst kind of journalist is what a wine writer. I think it probably applies to wine writers. It's what they call a a fan with a laptop. So you know, if if you just you're uncritical and you don't think that part of your job is to say this could be better, or to say this is great this is very good, this is average, and this is pretty shit, frankly. You're not really doing your job, you know. And I think that, you know, if you go into journalism to make friends, then you're in the wrong business. I think that part of it should be, you know, you need you need to offend people sometimes, you know, that people, you, know you do. You know, that, that, that if everything you say is so bland that nobody takes offence, what's the point of being a journalist? <laughs> I don't see it. And I think, you know, people like the Rioja Conseco Regulador, they don't see that. They think that of journalists that should be fans with laptops. And they shouldn't. I think that journalists should say, you know, good, better, best, worst, and why, and how places could improve. Anyway, that's my opinion. No, and what I do really appreciate about the report, again, for anyone who's not listened, is that you can go online and you can go, oh, teach me about Rioja. And it will say, here's your three regions. These are the soils. This is the elevation and the rainfall. Or you can read and you're putting that in, but you're asking questions, aren't you? And also allowing us to actually think as well. That is the point. So there's a little bit more emotion. There's a little bit more feeling into your reports than rather just, there isn't so many statistics, is there, Tim? No, I'm trying to avoid the statistics. I mean, the statistics are in there and I think they're important. You need to know how many thousand hectares there are, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I I think it's important, as as you said, to know about how's climate change affecting it? You know, has the Vineyard of Singularis worked? How is this region run? Who's it run for? You know, is it run well? What's the future? There's always a thing in my reports, there are 10 points at the beginning. And one of them is always, what next? And, you know, so where is this place going? And I think that a lot of regions, not just in Spain, but, you know, in South Africa, Chile, where I've just been, Chile's in a major crisis at the moment. South Africa has problems selling its wines at the prices they deserve. I mean, this is a global set of problems, is how does the wine industry, and I suppose we're both part of a broader wine industry, how do we talk about that? How do we address those problems? And like you just mentioned Chile, I mean, just every year it's like the next fire their the differences in their client like as we both know we met yeah. because I worked for a Chilean winery we did. yes we did yeah. and yeah. you know I, I remember even right back at the beginning when I first started part of my spiel was a bit like you know there is a little bit more consistency with the climates in Chile so you know you can feel a bit more comfortable it was almost part of my sale point for Chile yeah. and but now I mean actually part of the sale point is it's so interesting because it's not like you really do, vintage variation yeah. is crazy but that's in great Chile. isn't it that's great that you, you you know Chile's such as you you know as well as I do you know it's such a long country uniquely long there's bound to be diversity 
diversity. And, and again, it's one of these things where everyone says, oh, right, 2023 was this, you know. And then you talk to somebody and they say, it wasn't like that here. You know, and you look at the, you know, look at the coast of Chile, which is, you know, I don't know if you've ever been swimming in that ocean, but it's bloody cold. It's freezing. It's freezing. Well, no, no, I dipped yeah, my toe in. The toe in. You know, <laughs> it's a massive body of cold water. And that has an enormous impact on vineyards that are close to the ocean. On the other side, you've got the Andes and you've got vineyards now at over 2,000 metres. And in the middle, you've got this sort of mostly hot, hotter, fertile series of, of valleys. But again, those vary massively. So I suppose what I'm trying to do with the reports and, and what we're trying to do generally with wine it's more complex than you think. And that's a good thing. You know, wine is very simple in a sense. It's fermented grape juice, right? And it's fun and it gets you merry. And if you drink too much of it, it gets you drunk and gives you a hangover, blah, blah, blah. You know, it goes great with food. We know all that. That's that's the basics. But the thing I like about wine, and it's what makes it interesting journalistically for me, is that there are so many areas of it that you can dive into. You know, the science, I'm not that interested in the science, but, you know, the geology, I'm quite interested in that. The history interests me a lot. The people interest me massively, you know, music. I just think about all the things that that I do through wine, you know, whether it's meeting musicians, whether it's talking to historians about stuff that was happening in the 17th century, if it's looking at soil types, you know, walking through vineyards. I, I think it's, it's so wonderful wine that it's both very simple and incredibly complex. It's one of the most complex things on earth if you want to dive into it in a deep way but you know wine we will never ever ever stop learning so just even the same way that we you talked about the villages and hopefully that will sort itself out a little bit more but when people realize there are specific villages in Rioja that are typically producing better quality wine they can start digging deeper it's not just hey I like Rioja Crianza versus a a Rioja Reserve it's like right actually I want to go to El Ciego I'm assuming that would be up there as a village that you would you would recommend presumably Uh, not particularly yeah. Oh, only yeah. And see, now I say that with my limited knowledge because I visited Marcus de Riscal. Yeah. They've got they're an amazing place to go to because of the that ridiculously amazing iconic uh, hotel that's yeah. right on the estate. But they make amazing wine, so I just assumed that would be kind of a a big tick. Tell me, where would you recommend? El Ciego would not be in my list of of the best villages. I mean, and a lot of the best villages are basically in north of the Ebro River, which is where El Ciego is as well, but a bit higher up the slope. And so places like La Guardia and La Bastida, and historically, La Guardia and La Bastida were two very important fortified towns, really, and had a certain degree of rivalry between them. And those two towns are probably two of the great wine towns of Rioja. And in the middle of those two is a place called San Vicente de la Sonsierra. Now, the slightly weird thing is that nearly all of the villages north of the river are in the Rioja Alavesa, right? But there's a little tongue of land that juts up from the Rioja Alta, and San Vicente de la Sonsierra is in the middle of it. So it basically sits on the northern side of the Ebro River, facing south, mostly, but it's in the Rioja Alta, and San Vicente de la Sonsierra is there. So I think those villages are great. Some of the villages in the Rioja Oriental, there's a place called Kel that I like very much, and Tudelia. I've never heard. Oh. Well, I've got to read the, read the report again. And you know, and in the, <laughs> the, su- the southern bit, and this is part of climate change, a lot of these villages that were in the southern bit of Rioja Alta, so very close to the Sierra de la Demanda, which is the southern border of Rioja that faced north, historically, 
historically were regions that made clarete, they made the rosé wine. And the reason they made rosé wine is because they couldn't get the red grapes ripe. They were mostly garnacha blended with viura to make clarete. And a lot of these vineyards now, which often at 700, 800 metres facing north, you know, Cordovine, places like that, Badaran, these are all very, very amazing villages with 100-year-old Garanacha vineyards that with climate change are coming into their own. So I mean, if you read the report, there are so many amazing villages. I mean, I is okay, but I wouldn't put it up there in my in my top 10, if I'm being honest. To be honest, I was like, I just know that there's a winery that I really like there. <laughs> what about, ah, okay. What about Briones? Ah, I'd put that up there. Because, again, I have a lot of emotion there because if I went to Vivanco, got taken care of there and they have an incredible museum. It's really, really special. I always, I tell people they must go to that museum because I remember this, there's a scratch and sniff I just, in terms of getting your, you know, your getting the aromas and really getting your your nose to start working, brilliant. And then, of course, the history. It's very interactive. So that's that's something. Where would you recommend people to go and visit? Obviously, Senti, like Arrow is the place you must go because that's where you could just walk up one street and there's some of the most iconic wineries on either side. It's the most amazing thing. But apart from say where would you for somebody to base themselves or spend a few days is there some places that you've just felt at home or is stunning and beautiful or some of the best views what do you think i would base myself in san vicente la sonciera because it's on the north side of the river it's kind of more or less in the middle of the best bits if you like and it's quite large as a town so lots of wine bars lots of places going to have breakfast in the morning lots of good wineries it's very close to briones it's not very far from la bastida from la guardia from aro as you said and Aro is where the station quarter is. So what transformed Rioja really in the 19th century was the railway line, which went from Aro really to Madrid, but also to north to Bilbao and basically took Rioja out northwards to the ports and went overseas from there. So, and, and as you said, a lot of these historic wineries, you know, Rioja Alta and Lopez de Heredia, Muga is a bit more recent, but, you know, a lot of these wineries are and Cune, they're all within a five minute walk. So that's a good place to go and spend the day. But San Vicente is a great place to base yourself. Go and see people in La Guardia. La Guardia is great, but it's a bit touristy and you can't park inside the town. And you know, it's sometimes difficult to park. But La Guardia is a great place to go and visit, but I wouldn't I wouldn't base myself there. I think San Vicente is a great place to be. But Briones is very close by, as you said. You've got Vivanco, which is this amazing wine museum. You've got, you know, two or three really top producers in Briones, not I mean, Vivanco are very good, but you've also got Miguel Marino and you've got Allende, you know. Both of those are with again within two feet of each other. There's also the hotel that I always stay at in Briones, which is called the Santa Maria Briones, which is I think the best hotel in Rioja. It's not cheap, but it's it's worth every single penny. Okay, there we go. There's a there's a I'm not sponsored a, by them. You know, we pay to go there, <laughs> but it's just really nice. Okay, it's good to know. So now we've obviously, actually, just one thing I want to touch on from your, you've been going back and forth to Rioja and you've been seeing it evolving and you say how interesting the history is. Rioja Oriental is obviously going to the east, uh, the warmer part of the region. They actually always used to have such a reputation for, that's the cheap stuff, you know, this is, and it's changed so much. So I just want to just push you a little bit on that to just talk from your opinion, just seeing it in the last decade, 
how you feel it's evolved and why? Before I do that, I'll just say that it used to be called historically the Rioja Baja, low Rioja, right? And it was so stupid because, as I said, a lot of the highest vineyards in Rioja, the highest vineyards in Rioja, are actually in the Rioja Baja, the low Rioja. <laughs> it was only called low Rioja because the river Ebro flows from the west to the east. So the river is at its lowest in the east, right? That's all it was. That's the only reason. Anyway, they changed it to eastern Rioja. Historically, it was a source of a lot of garnacha. And garnacha, Grenache, was blended historically across the region with Tempranillo. Tempranillo is lighter bodied, it's earlier ripening, and garnacha was used to beef up Tempranillo, right? And so the historic blend of Rioja was Tempranillo from the Alavesa or Alta with garnacha from the east, from the Oriental, and little bits and pieces of Mazuelo and Graciana. But those were the salt and pepper, right? The problem with the Oriental and why it's got a bad reputation is it's dominated by cooperatives, many of which are not very good. It's also dominated by large plantings of Tempranillo in the wrong place. Tempranillo is a very bad grape to plant in the Oriental. It's too hot, right? But because it's more productive than Garnacha, they pulled out a lot of the Garnacha and planted Tempranillo instead. Bad move, right, in terms of quality. So a lot of Rioja's worst wines come from this particular region. Also, as you said, there's been a counter-revolution, really, in the last, I would say, 10 to 15 years of small, mostly smaller producers, but really led by Álvaro Palacios, who's very famous, one of the most famous winemakers in Spain. And he's down there, and he has really championed an area called the Monte Yerga, which is a, a high mountain. He's got some of these vineyards at 700, 800 metres on the Monte Yerga. And Álvaro really has relaunched the Rioja Oriental and he's been followed by other people, Javier Curin. There's another fantastic producer called Viñedos en Boz Baja, in other words, vineyards that speak with a quiet voice, who have refocused on Garnacha, mostly on Garnacha, but also Mazuelo and Graciana, but not on Tempranillo. So a lot of the new Rioja Oriental, if you like, is these smaller producers. I mean, Álvaro is a bit bigger than that, but smaller producers who are rediscovering what made the Garnacha great in the Rochental in the history, really. And they're not really planting Tempranillo, which is great. And I think that Rioja at the moment has got too many vineyards. And top of the list for the stuff it should pull out should be a lot of the Tempranillo that's been planted in the last 20 years in the Rioja Oriental, which is mostly mediocre and worse. Is that mm. honest? So now, interesting. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, no, no. I, it, that's very interesting what you're saying possibly should be pulled out. What's your feeling then on, we've, you've talked about the red grapes on Viura or the other white grapes because I think actually about what one in 20 of wines of Rioja is white so it's a very small percentage yeah. do you have the statistic on that? I think it's about 92% red and about now 8% white now and historically there were really two and a half three grapes really so Viura which is the main one Malvasia or there are different types of Malvasia but it's a family of those and Garacha Blanca, so white Grenache, which is a mutation of red Grenache. And then I think I've forgotten the exact year. Was it 2008? Time moves on so fast. I can't remember. Was it 2007? They allowed lots of other grapes in. And some of them were rediscovered grapes that they'd found, you know, planted in small plantings of things. One of which was Tempranillo Blanco, which is a mutation of, of red Tempranillo. And the other one is called Maturana Blanca. Maturana Blanca is an amazing grape variety and very historic. It's been in Rioja since we think since about the 16th century. So it's a very old grape. They also, and this was another example of stupidity, allowed people to plant Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay and Verdejo. Does the world need any more Chardonnay Sauvignon Blanc from Rioja? It really doesn't. Does it need Verdejo when Rueda makes Verdejo? No, it doesn't. But they, as ever, 
made the wrong decision and allowed crap grapes or, or rather international grapes to be planted alongside local grapes and rediscovered local ones. All of this has meant that Rioja is very diverse and it's white wines, I think, are some of the greatest in Spain and people don't know it. They think that Rioja is a red wine region, but it's actually, I think, I put it up there in the top two or three white wine regions in Spain. And it's white wines are every bit as diverse as it's red wines because you can have, obviously, varietal, you know, any of these things can be made as varietal wines, including Chardonnay, unfortunately, and Sauvignon Blanc. But you can also <laughs> have really interesting blends. So you have Viura with Malvasia, with Tempranillo Blanco, you know, with Turuntes, which is another a grape that was allowed back in, historic grape. And so the white blends are amazing and they're undervalued. I mean, there are some white wines, particularly the white wines of Lope de Redia, you know, Tondonia, which are now getting the prices they deserve. But 20 years ago, you couldn't give them away. And these old, you know, they're almost oxidative styles. They've got a little bit of sort of sherry notes about them. Um, have now been recognised partly by me, I think, as some of the great white wines of Spain. That's one style. There are probably 20 different styles of white wine. So one of my tips I'd give you in this podcast would be buy the white wines before they go up in price because they're so brilliant. And if you come to my tasting, there'll be lots of them there. You could easily spend the evening just tasting the whites for an hour and, and taste those. And to be honest, for me, always the best whites from Rioja I've tasted as well tend to have some oak and have been aged longer. Like you mentioned, yeah. Vigna Tondonia, which, gosh, anyone who doesn't know about Vigna Tondonia, check out the rosé, the red, yeah. the white, all of them fantastic. But are you finding there's a lot of beautiful examples without oak that are just showing Viura in its, you know, more classic form? I mean, it's another myth of, of Rioja. The problem is that to be called Crianza Reserva or Gran Reserva, your wine has to be aged for a specific amount of time in 225 litre oak, right? So they actually tell you what size of oak you can use. And most of the best younger producers have said, stuff that, I don't want to follow what they're telling me to do. I need a main thing. So I might want to use concrete eggs. I might want to use 500 litre barrels. I might want to use cement, you know, I, uh, tanks. I might want to, uh, you know, use acacia. I might want to use Russian oak. I might want, you know, and so the new wave, if you like, again, is just pushing the boundaries. So this tiny little sort of redoubt of Rioja that thinks it's got to be this way is slowly being just exploded by people saying, why do we have to do that? Why? That's not even historic. I mean, historically, people didn't use 225 litres. If you look at old pictures of Rioja in the 19th century, they had big foudre, you know, enormous, great big, you know, large, you know, several hectolitre tanks or large barrels. So I think what is historic and what is not historic is open to interpretation. And I think that I like the idea of anything goes. It's the iconoclast in me. And I think, again, it's what I like. As, as you said, a lot of them do have oak, but lots of them don't. A lot of the best wines have very little new oak. They might have big oak or older oak or all those other things I talked about, including concrete eggs and, you know, whatever, really, anything goes. And that's what makes it interesting. And certainly the newer generation are really stepping away from oak usage and as you said different aging vessels that are not going to add flavor so so to slowly finish off this episode on Rioja of the new generation winemakers there are a few that come to mind that you feel you happy to just mention and give people a suggestion of a few places that people might want to in fact even to to come and see it at the tasting i'm very happy to and and you know one of the things i do in my reports is i nick the 1855 classification from bordeaux and so I use it to my own purposes. So I have first growth, second growth, third growth, fourth growth, 
fifth grades. Two people who are who are still comparatively young, at least to me, uh, who are in my first grades, <laughs> and they're not very far apart. You can drive between the two quite easily. One is in Briones, which would be Miguel Merino, Miguel Merino Jr., because his dad was also called Miguel Merino. And the other would be a, a bodega called Artuque, who are, they are in Banos de Rio Ebro, and, and they're right on the river Ebro, again in the Rioja Alavesa. And Artuque was one of only two wines I from Rioja I've ever given 100 points to, and the other one was a white wine from Vina Tondonia. So Artuque, La Condenada, I'd go and see those two. Uh, you also might want to go and see Jose Gil, again, GIL. He's based in Briones, but has vineyards in San Vicente, La Sonsiera. A great, great, great friend of mine, you know, he's my age, so he's not he's not young anymore, but is Abel Mendoza or Mendoza, I suppose, uh, who and his wife uh, is called Maite and Maite and Abel, if you get a chance to go and taste with them, sit around their kitchen table, that is kind of, they're in San Vicente de la Sonsiera, that is kind of the quintessential Rioja experience. So small, think small, go and see the small producers and just make the best of them, really. I love that. Okay, right, because... Wine is fun because you don't take things seriously. We're going to do, we're going to finish off this, this episode with a bit of a quick fire. So people just know your thoughts. Right. So tell me your thoughts on sangria. Yay or nay? Uh, if there's nothing else to drink. <laughs> um, stemless wine glasses. Fine by me. Yeah, I, I really don't, as long as it's got a good bowl, I think the stem is not, the stem is not an important bit. I mean, it's slightly harder to do a bit of a swirl, you know, that professional thing that we all do. But I think stemless fine. I'm, I'm not a snob when it comes to glass. I like a good glass, but it needs to be a good bowl. Yeah. No, I'm good because I'm always like, there's a redill glass which has no stem. I love them. I'm a big fan of that. Okay, good, good. Wine in a can. Why not if it brings new people into the wine industry? And I think one of the big problems we have is that people of your generation and younger than you, sorry, are there people younger than you? Yes, there are now. Oh, younger than you, you know. <laughs> there definitely are. Exactly. They're not necessarily interested in drinking 75 centiliters of wine or sharing it with their mates. They might just want a little can. Uh, I think cans, you know, there's some very good wines in cans now. I, so I think it's rather than the wine. Uh, so rather than the package, it's the wine that matters. I think as long as the wine in the package is good, then who cares? You know, bag in box, fine. Tetra pack, fine. I'm really not a packaging snob. I, I don't think it has to be in a bottle to be great. Okay. One kind of proof. Flavoured wine. Uh, no, thank you. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. okay. What about this trend? Rosé wine with a jalapeno in it? You done it? No, uh, the the weirdest thing I've had was actually a, a Chinese wine with a dead lizard in it. But uh, where the, what? Yeah, where the lizard the lizard had actually started to flake off in the bottle. The jalapeno pepper with anything sounds pretty horrible to me, and that's going to be pretty hot, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, chili peppers are. are one of those things that they're they're not enemies of wine, but they make it difficult. To, they're a very strong flavour, and I think that they make it difficult to drink. So I, I think that that would be a if, if I must. Probably but not. I, I think once. <laughs> yeah. And to finish off, non-alcoholic wine. They always seem completely pointless to me. It really is because I think part of the joy of wine is alcohol that it gets you slightly merry. You know, I do recognise that some people have to drive and things like that. Well, I just think, well, drink water or just have one glass. In non-alcoholic wine seems to me to be utterly pointless. So if you want low alcohol wine, which is different, drink Moscato d'Asti. You know, Moscato d'Asti has five oh, percent has yeah. a delicious drink and that has five percent alcohol. I mean five percent alcohol yeah. for a beer would be quite strong, but for a wine, that's about as light as it gets 
without you going into non-alcoholed or low, deliberately made as low alcohol wines where they remove the alcohol. The other thing I'd recommend would be German Riesling. Mosel Riesling, like a Spätlaser or a Cabinet, you can get 8% Mosel Rieslings, which are absolutely delicious. And again, the alcohol is not too high. So if you want to drink lighter wines, I'd say drink wines with lower alcohol, but not wines where the alcohol has been removed. Perfect. Is that all right? Oh, That's God. the end of my speech from Done. the soapbox. Finished. <laughs> Don't forget, you can go to timatkin.com if you want to buy tickets to go to the London Rioja wine tasting event. But also from the website, you can download all of his special reports, whether it be on the wines of Chile, wines of South Africa. There's even one on Rias Beitjes right now. There's a whole load. But one of his latest was on the wine region, Ribera del Duero. And so for that reason, you need to join us for part two next week, where we'll be talking about his winemaking champions, the winemakers on his podium. We'll be talking about grape varieties like Albijo Mayor. This is a white grape variety. Tim will be telling us where to stay, what to do. So stay tuned for next week. Now, I did a wine quote from Louis Pasteur last week. So do you know what? I'm just going to do another one of his because I like them. And so he said, a bottle of wine contains more philosophy than all the books in the world. Right, that's it. You know what's coming next week. Like this podcast, share this podcast with your wine loving friends and do, if you have a few moments, leave a review and some stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Love to you all. May this year continue to inspire you, to motivate you. I hope you're all planning that trip to Rioja. And until next week, wine friends. Cheers to you.